teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful to celebrate death and resurrection of your son. Lord, all these songs that, Lord, we desire to express our worship of you, our, our awe and respect and wonder and love, gratitude. Lord, I pray for these events in the next few weeks coming up that, that, Lord, you would be honored through them as well. And Lord, this morning as we look to your word, challenge us, encourage us, exhort us, comfort us, admonish Lord, whatever we need to be made more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we uh, indeed are creatures of habit, aren't we? I mean, we do so many things out of routine. Uh, Patterns, habits, uh, do things the way we've always done them, right? You make your sandwich a certain way, right? You uh, brush your teeth a certain way, right? You, You roll out the toothpaste in a certain fashion. You take a certain route to work. Each day, you get ready, uh, your bed, get ready for bed with a certain routine. Fold your laundry in a certain way, or if you're like me, you just shove it in a drawer, right? You put your toilet paper on the toilet holder a certain way, and we all know over the top is the correct way, right? See, not a lot of nodding heads there, right? We'll start a ministry, right? Over the top rollers. But we all have a habit there. You know, when you go in the bathroom and it's not the way it's supposed to be, you know what you do, right? You flip it back around. <laughs> you sit in the every, every, same seat every Sunday. I mean, we're creatures of habit, patterns. <laughs> and rarely, though, do we stop and ask ourselves why. Why do we do it that way? Why do we do the things we do? For the most part, right, we just go along and we keep doing them as we've always done them. Same could be said for Sunday mornings. Got up this morning, got ready probably in a certain way that you did, and took the same route to get here to church, and then sat in your same seat that you sat in last week. And right, we have a routine on Sunday mornings. But why? We could ask ourselves as a church, why do we do what we do? Why do we gather on a Sunday? Why have we designated that as a, a day that we gather together? And why do we do the things we do when we are here? Singing, sermon, giving, Sunday school. I mean, why do we have, you know, the coffee and the Snacks out front. I guess I get the coffee part. You're going to have to come listen to me for an hour. So that's a good booster there. For... But seriously, we rarely ask why. And from time to time, we need to do that. From time to time, we need to take a step back and ask these questions. Especially at such an important time as Sunday morning. I recently read a book called The Deliberate Church, written by Mark Dever and Paul Alexander. And in it, they discuss the biblical reasons why they gather together and the things that they do as a church. And I thought after reading it, it would be good for us to talk about. So what I want to do is we're going to take a a short break from the Minor Prophets. Uh, You know, a lot of churches do these summer series. So we're going to do a summer series, just a little late in the summer. Um, Just a few weeks and talk about this. The series is What's Up on This Sunday. That's the the theme of the series. And we'll talk about these various aspects, things that we do together, the singing, the communion, the giving, uh, Sunday school, and and many of these other things that we gather together and participate in Sunday morning. Because it's 
It's important that we are purposeful. And more importantly is the things that we do, that they're consistent with what God wants. So this morning, I want us to consider the topic broadly. This will be more of a topical message looking at why do we gather together on Sunday? Why do we have a service at all? What is its purpose? What is, its for, what is it for? And how should that purpose affect how we gather, what we do together, and, and the manner in which we do it? And to answer these questions, we need to first know who we are. I and mean, what does it mean that we are a church? And nothing helps us to understand our identity as the church better than, I think, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So I want to start our time this morning looking at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. We spent some time in this book a couple of years ago. I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 2 because in this chapter, it's all about our identity. Paul begins the chapter discussing our identity. He says there that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that our identity, all humanity, is as those who sinned against God. And he describes that we're enslaved to our sinful nature, how we have been enslaved to Satan and to the world. That is all of us. Verse 3 says we are, as a result, children of wrath. But then Paul goes on to say in verse 4, that in Christ we're transformed. We're no longer dead in sin. We're alive in Christ. We're no longer uh, instruments of sin, but now in verse 10 of good works, we're no longer condemned to eternal separation from God, but we are now raised up together with Christ in the heavenly places. And then in verse 11 of chapter 2, Paul zeroes in on the Gentile audience, his Gentile audience, the Ephesians, And he talks to them and he reminds them that not only were you like all humanity, dead in sin, but you were even, if it could be possible, in a worse place, you were totally separate from God. You were outside the promises of Israel, without God and without hope in the world, he said. But then he goes on to talk about in Christ, Gentile and Jew, all of God's people have been brought together in the Lord Jesus, those who place their faith in him, as one body, one entity, one church. In fact, if you look in verses 14 to 18 of chapter 2, there's this emphasis on one, on unity. As he describes the church there as one group, one new man, one body. God's people are not separate, but they are one, one entity, one organism. And then following that emphasis on unity, Paul says these words in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now Paul here at the end of chapter 2, in describing who we are as a church, uses a certain metaphor. Did you guys catch it? What's the analogy? What's the illustration? How does he describe us as a church? We are a building, right? We're a building. We're a structure. Elsewhere in Ephesians, he described the church as a body, the body of Christ. Chapter 5, he describes the church as the bride of Christ. But here in chapter 2, he describes us as a building, as a structure. And there's a couple of things that are important to see here as he describes us that way. Notice he says first, we're God's household, having been built, in whom the whole building, growing into a holy temple, being built together into a dwelling, right? Those are all building terms. And this description of us as a building has two aspects to it. One is that we are one building. We're all interconnected. Uh, We are all bricks and stones that have been shaped in a certain way to be interconnected with one another. And so that's part of the picture here. 
But I think an even more fundamental and even more important truth that this expresses is we are not only one structure interconnected, but notice he says you are of God's household. He says Christ himself being the cornerstone, growing into a holy temple in the Lord, being built together into a dwelling of God. See, his point is going beyond the fact that we make up one building. It's focusing on who this building is for. We're not a social organization that unifies around a, a cause or a common interest or an idea. Notice again verse 21. We are being fitted or being joined together, growing into a holy temple, and again, in the Lord. And what is a temple? That word temple. How would they have understood it, those reading this letter? Right? It was a place where you would go to worship your deity, right? In fact, in Jerusalem, temple of the Lord, that's a place where people would go to offer sacrifice, to sing praise, to pray, right, to God. So it, he's saying here, in a sense, we are like a place. We are a people who are gathered to worship and exalt God, as you would in a temple, Notice, too, he adds in verse 22, you are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Now, what is a dwelling? What do you think when you hear the word dwelling? House, right? A residence, the place where I live, the place where I stay. And he describes us here, us, again, we're not talking about the brick and mortar and the beams and all that, right? He's talking about people, those who are Christians, those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. We are described as a dwelling of God. So not only are we considered a, a place where God is to be exalted, but also a place where God lives. Again, not in this building, but in the people who inhabit this building, the church. So we are built together, not just for the purpose of gathering, being together. We are built together for a person. Our camaraderie, our love, our fellowship, our interaction, care for one another, they're all, they're all centered around a person, and we exist for a person. So when we gather together like this, the question isn't so much why are we gathering, but for whom are we gathering? It's an important distinction, because ultimately, do we gather for us? I mean, we do benefit from being together. I like it when Jim comes up. He's a funny guy. He encourages me. He challenges me. And when I spend time with you all, there are benefits from that. But ultimately, we gather for him. That's why we're together. In fact, that's indeed the picture we see in the early church in Acts chapter 2. If you could turn there a moment, we'll look at that. This chapter, chapter 2, is the chapter which describes the birthday of the church, the actual day in which the church was born, Holy Spirit, Descended, Peter preached this sermon on the resurrection and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people were convicted, and many people came to Christ that day. And then we read in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. 
Verse 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Luke here describes quite a picture. And it's this picture of, as the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, who had been raised from the dead and raised up to the glory of the Father in heaven, seated on high, that that message of salvation, as it was proclaimed, people would come to believe and have faith, turn from their sins and put their trust in the Lord Jesus and become part of this building, this church. Again, not building as in structure, building as in people. And notice what was happening here. What's the picture that Luke paints for us? As these people gathered together, what were they doing? Sharing. Sharing with one another, right? They were listening to the apostles' teaching, fellowshipping with each other, breaking bread together, prayer, caring for needs, all kinds of activity. Social interaction was going on. But notice, what did it produce? What did that gathering result in? Was it solely for that Human interaction, look at the beginning of verse 47. What came out of it? Praising God, right? In fact, they gathered to hear the word of God. They gathered to pray to God. They gathered together to show the love of God towards one another. And ultimately, that led to a praising of God. Consistently, ongoing. See, these corporate gatherings weren't just for the social interaction or for the caring of physical needs or living life together. Notice they gathered together not just as a community, as a worshiping community. There's a difference. We're a community. Not only that, we are a worshiping community. And when those who are a worshiping community, when they have been saved and transformed by the glorious power of the gospel, the Holy Spirit changes their heart been forgiven, been freed from enslavement to sin, when they're living the week in communion with God, and when those people come together, there should be an explosion, a synergy. Or we see that in Acts 2, this, this activity, this excitement, this, this unity, this working together and being together, but it all was focused on and resulted in and produced glory to God, for, for He is the one who brought it all about, Right? And so when we gather together, what is it that should happen? Where is it that our attention would naturally be drawn to or should be drawn to? Jesus uh, is talking to the woman at the well in John 4. And you remember what he told her when he said it the very, or towards the end, they were talking and he said, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And then he said this, For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So ultimately, Jesus answers a question here. The question is, what is it God is looking for, or who is God looking for? True what? True worshipers, right? Christ didn't die just so that we could get along with each other, though that is a blessing and a benefit. Christ died so that we would be able to, in cleanliness and holiness, rightly worship Him as He deserves. And the blessing of that is the fellowship 
unity with one another and with him. And so our whole life really should be an act of worship, right? Every day, all day. But when we gather together, it should be like this, this crescendo, right? Uh, you know, if you take a bunch of small flames and put them together, they would produce a bonfire, a bonfire of worshipers of Christ. And so we gather together to worship him. And that's exactly what you see in Acts 2. Again, this, this buildup that produces this joy that can't be contained so ultimately, the appropriate question is not what Sunday is for, but for whom Sunday is for, right? The question of why we gather is answered by knowing for whom we gather. And because of this, we need to ask ourselves, what does the one we gather for want? <laughs> right? Ultimately, we need to understand, how is it that he desires to be worshipped then? Jesus said to worship him in spirit and truth, but... How does that translate into what we do? What does that look like? And that brings us to our second point today. We've been talking about our first one, which is who is our worship for? The second point is, well, what does he want? And to answer that question, I like to take us back to 1 Chronicles 13. I said Chronicles, not Corinthians. 1 Chronicles 13. Yes, it's one of those places in the Bible. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It's right around some of the genealogies. And we aren't going to look through a genealogy together, so don't worry. But there's an event here that's important for us to, to see. The circumstances, the setting of this First Chronicles 13, it happens early in the reign of King David. If you remember, when David came to the throne, actually there was a civil war going on. Because when King Saul died... Those who were loyal to Saul, particularly Abner, his commander, uh, had put Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, on the throne. So he was king over the, uh, many of the tribes of Israel, while Judah was, had uh, David as their king. They were loyal to him. And as a result, the civil war took place. But with, after a bunch of things that took place, ending with Ishbosheth's assassination and David's wisdom and how he handled that, all the people of Israel came together again and they made David as king. It was kind of a big deal. And then right after that, the city of Jebus was conquered by David and became Jerusalem. And David wanted to have Jerusalem, which it was centered on a point kind of central to Israel, just at the northern part of the tribe of Judah, near the southern part of the northern tribes of Israel. He wanted that to be a place not only a center geographically and politically, but also the center of uh, true worship in Israel. He wanted that to be the place where the Israelites would come for those three annual feasts and where the, the temple or the tabernacle at that time would be for worship of God. And so David wanted to, wanted to establish Jerusalem as that place, but there was one thing that needed to be done before that could happen. And that's what we're going to read about here in First Chronicles 13. In verse 1, notice it says, Then David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. And David said to all the assembly of Israel, If it seems good to you, and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we do not seek it in the days of Saul." Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together from Shehor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, 
to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who's enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. Okay, so what is it that David wants to do here? Wants to establish Jerusalem as a place of worship, but there's one thing missing. The ark, right? Now, what is the ark? It's not the big boat. That was Noah, right? Ark is literally the word, the Hebrew word is box. It was a box, but it was no ordinary box, right? What was the ark of God, the ark of the covenant? Remember, it was something back in Exodus 25 that God had commissioned Moses to have built. It was to be about uh, four feet long and a little over two feet high, two feet wide, made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And God had said to have this box made and that the tablets, the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets would be put inside. And then the lid of that box was called the mercy seat. It's like a, a seat there, and there were two cherubim, these winged creatures that, whose wings covered the throne. And that is very significant, because when we read about the visions in heaven, there are cherubim in heaven, these creatures with wings cover over the throne. They, remember, they, they cover their eyes with some, and the, the other they spread out. So this ark, this seat of the ark was to, in a sense, represent the throne room of heaven. And in fact, God said in Exodus 25, from there, Moses, I will meet you. So God's presence would reside there. So the ark came to represent the presence of God, the, the throne room of God, if you will, on earth. Again, it was a picture. God is not a, a he's, in fact, we read in John 4, he's a spirit, right? He's not a physical being. But that was the place where God would manifest his presence. So it was kind of a big deal. It was an important deal, right? The ark was no ordinary box. And we should know that just from the Indiana Jones movie, right? I mean, come on. Now, that describes a little bit about the ark. And it was interesting, too. Remember that the ark represented God, as I said. And in the wilderness, guess what it was? It was out in front of the people as they moved from one location to the next. They were carrying the ark. In fact, the ark was the first thing that crossed over the River Jordan when they came into the promised land. Since the ark represented God, since it was such an important uh, object, holy object, it, God wanted it to be treated appropriately. He wanted it to be treated as sacred. He wanted it to be treated as they would treat him because it represented him. In fact, he had a specific way as they were transporting it around that they, he wanted it carried. He describes this in Numbers chapter 4. Because again, as they would move from place to place, they, they had a tabernacle the Lord set up with a court around it. And this was where they would come to offer worship and sacrifice. Well, when they moved, they had to move that too, right? And God had a certain way that he wanted it done. And so he assigned various uh, sections or various um, uh, um, groups within the tribe of Levi. They were divided into three based on the sons of Levi, Gershon, Merari, and Kohath. And the sons of Gershon, they were the ones given responsibility for the canvas, essentially, for the court canvas, the fencing, and also the canvas of the tent itself. They were to roll it up and they put it on a cart and have it moved. And then the, the tribe, the descendants of Merari, they were responsible for the fixtures, the, the, uh, like the framing and the rings and the pillars. They were to put all that together and put that on a cart and haul it away. But the holy objects inside... They had a special procedure God wanted followed. And the sons of Kohath, he commissioned. And what he said was, okay, Aaron, you and your sons, you go in and you cover all the holy objects. You take the veil down, you cover the, the ark. And then he said, 
Then the sons of Kohath, you come in and with poles, you carry them. You don't touch these objects. They don't go on a cart. In fact, number seven, Moses said, sons of Gershon, sons of Merari, you get some oxen and a cart. Sons of Kohath, no. You're going to carry this stuff because that's what God says. He wanted it treated as holy. He didn't want anything to happen such that they would be tempted to touch or look upon these objects. They were to be covered. In fact, in Numbers 4.4, it's God speaking through Moses to the Levites, to Aaron in particular. This is the work of the descendants of Kohath and the tent of meeting meeting concerning the most holy things. When the camp sets out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and they shall take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they shall lay a covering of porpoise skin on it and shall spread over it a cloth of pure blue and shall insert its poles. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. So again, God says, cover it up. Don't touch it. If you touch it, what's going to happen? Yeah, death penalty. Pretty severe. And why is that? Why such a harsh judgment? These objects, again, were used in the worship of God and in the case of the ark were representative of God. So treat them as sacred. And he said, if you don't, you'll die. That's a little bit about the ark. We learn in 1 Chronicles 13, 5, that the ark was housed in this place, in the man's house called Abinadab. He was in a place, Kiriath Jerim, which was about 10 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And it was in his house, and it took a rather circuitous route to get there. In fact, uh, originally, after it was made in the time of Moses, they carried it around in, in the wilderness. And then after that, in the time of the judges, it was uh, located in Bethel and then Shiloh. And eventually ended up in the hands of the Philistines. Remember that whole situation, right? They defeated Israel in battle. They took the ark, put it in their temple. Their fish got Dagon, kept finding his way down onto the floor. And then God plagued the people, the Philistines, with tumors, probably spread by rats, a bubonic plague. They realized it's connected to this, this golden box that they put in their temple. They wanted nothing to do with it. They put it on a cart, sent it away. It found its way to Beth Shemesh, where the people, oh, check this out. They looked inside. Guess what happened? Again, you've seen Indiana Jones, right? You know, the whole melting face, right? I mean, no, there were many, many people that died. Many Philistines died for having the ark. Many people in Beth Shemesh died for looking into it. What message is God trying to send here? This is a sacred box. Don't mess with it. So people said, okay, we don't want to mess with it. It ends up in Abinadab's house for almost two generations, probably 70 years or so, from the end of Samuel's time all through the time of Saul and then into David's reign. And David said, that sacred object needs to be where it belongs, in the tabernacle. And we're going to have that in Jerusalem. And so David wants to bring it there. Let's pick it up in verse 6. David and all Israel, 1 Chronicles 13, David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, the Lord, who's enthroned above the cherubim, where his name is called. Again, even notice there, it says the ark of God, the Lord, where his name is called. See how strong a representation of that the ark was considered by God of him? And they carried, verse 7, the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab. 
And Uzzah and Ahio drove the cart. Uzzah and Ahio were sons or grandsons of Abinadab. And David and all Israel were celebrating with God, with all, before God with all their might, even with songs and with lyres, harps, tambourines, cymbals, and with trumpets. Okay, we'll stop there a minute. What's going on here? What's the scene? What do we have happening here? We've got a parade happening here, right? We've got the, the ark on the cart. Ahio and Uzzah are driving the cart. It's in the front of the parade. We've got uh, the singers. We've got you know, music, tambourines, lyres. And if you go back to 2 Samuel, it says there were at least 30,000 men there, many more women and children. So we have tens of thousands of people. Picture that, right? The ark in front, everything is grand. But there is one problem, isn't there? Just a few little words tucked in there. What was the ark? Uh-oh. Again, God specifically said, no cart, no oxen, you carry. Well, look at verse 9. When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before the Lord. Then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and he called that place Peretz Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of God that day, saying, How can I bring the ark of God home to me? So David did not take the ark with him to the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Thus the ark of God remained with the family of Obed-Edom in his house three months, and the Lord blessed the family of Obed-Edom with all that he had. Again, picture this scene. Huge parade, right? This huge celebration. Everyone's moving along. It's a 10-mile journey into Jerusalem. So, you know, they're singing, carrying on, rejoicing. And then right in the middle of all this cheering and music and and all of that, the oxen stumble. The... uh, Road workers were on strike, I guess, so there were some potholes or something that got in the way, but they stumbled, right? And as a result, the ark gets, the, ark, the uh, cart gets upset. Uzzah's concerned, right? Maybe the ark was sliding. He's concerned that it's going to hit the dirt, right? So what does he do? Probably without thinking, right? He goes out and the word there isn't just touched. It's actually, he grabbed it. He grabbed the ark. What happened? We know this story, right? Immediately he died. And what's very clear, and it's emphasized because it's said more than once, he didn't die from natural causes. It wasn't that he just all of a sudden had a heart attack or something. David knew immediately what happened, and so did the people. And it's explicitly stated here in the text, it was God who struck him dead. Right in the middle of this huge celebration in God's honor. Or so it would seem. And so there he is, lying on the ground, Verse 11 says it was the Lord's outburst. That word peretz means it has this idea of to explode or a military term to to burst through the ranks. So when Uzzah did that, when he grabbed the ark, God's anger exploded onto the scene, struck him dead. Seems a little over the top, doesn't it? I mean, especially in a ceremony that's dedicated to him. Everybody was singing and praising, rejoicing. Hey, we're bringing the ark of God back or into Jerusalem. Why did he respond this way? Right? The ark could have hit the ground, could have been damaged. 
One of the cherubim could have broken off, or who knows what could have happened. So why did God do this? Well, we know that God is always fair and right, right? It's always just. I didn't hear too many yeahs there. We know that. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. And so the question we need to ask is not whether this God's action here was fair, but what was it that Uzzah did wrong? Why did God respond so severely? I mean, weren't Uzzah's intentions good? Well, see, the problem with this whole event was that God was never consulted. Essentially, they held a party for God without inviting him or consulting him about what he wanted at this party. God had been very explicit about how he wanted the sacred object that was representative of his presence. He was very specific about how that was to be carried. He didn't have a problem with it being moved. Because again, when it was in Obed-Edom's house, he blessed them. Probably because they were treating that object with respect, treating God with respect. So he didn't have a problem with it being moved. The issue was how they were moving it and the attitude towards God that was being reflected in the manner that they were doing it. Because again, they ignored what God had said regarding this ark, how it was to be moved. They didn't carry it on the poles. God was being treated here very casually, without concern, and that was the problem. No one gave any consideration for what would honor God or dishonor God in this ceremony. R.C. Sproul said this, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark, it was the touch of a man. The dirt isn't tainted by sin. We are. That a man would dare, you know, take hold of what symbolized God's holy presence, what symbolized the throne room of God, that, that a man would do that. And Uzzah should have known better. That ark was in his home for two generations. 2 Samuel 6.8 says that Uzzah was struck down for his irreverence. And that's exactly the point. God is not to be treated lightly. He's to be feared and respected. His holiness is to be revered. He needs to be worshipped as he wants to be worshipped, not as we want to worship. You remember Aaron's sons, right? Nadab and Abihu? Remember what happened to them? There's a book called that, Strange Fire. Right, these guys, sons of Aaron, very first time they were carrying out their priestly duty. God had just given all the instructions what the priests were doing. He just consecrated the tabernacle, consecrated the ark, consecrated the holy objects, consecrated the Aaron and his sons. First thing they were going to do in their official capacity was to burn incense. And it says in Leviticus 10, verse 1, that they burned a strange or profane fire before the Lord, and God did what as a result? You know what, guys? Uh, no, you got that one wrong. Go back out. Let me tell you again how it's to be done, and then we'll try it one more time. Is that what he did? You'd think that would have been the fair thing to do. This was their first time in all, God. No, a fire consumed them on the spot. Why such a swift harsh response what should that tell us beloved god cares about how he's treated his instructions about worshiping him are a big deal 
We don't treat him as familiar. We don't ignore what he wants. The question becomes, well, how do these guys, Nadab, Abihu, Uzzah, how do they apply to us? Those guys are under the Mosaic Covenant, right? The ceremonial laws and instruction that was specific of how to worship God and, how, and all these things. That was just for them. That was just for the Old Testament, for the people under Mosaic Law, right? What does that have to do with the New Covenant, with us, with the church? Well, let me ask you this. Has God changed? Has His holiness changed? Has needing to revere him changed? Does he no longer care how we worship him? Back then he cared, now he doesn't. Is that the answer? Can we approach God any way that we want to? Aren't things different now after the cross? Well, let me ask you this. What about Ananias and Sapphira? When they gave a deceptive offering, what happened to them? front door of the church it dropped dead or Jim just read from 1 Corinthians 11 if he had read a couple more verses after that he talked about our need to examine ourselves and the problem was there were some there in Corinth who weren't this is a people in a church in the in taking communion some of them did not examine themselves some of them were ongoing in disunity and factions and not showing love to their brothers and sisters they took it in an unworthy manner and verse 30 said as a result remember what happened to them some were weak, some were sick, and some died. So these are two things. Giving, communion, aren't those things we all do? They are, right? They're things we all do. These are new covenant activities, if you will. And apparently, God still does care about how we worship him. <laughs> apparently, it still matters to him. If there's any time that we should be most sensitive to giving God the awe and respect and honor, He deserves it all week, every day, all day, but especially when we gather together, all of us in a time focused on honoring Him, right? Praising Him. And yet, what has become of the modern church worship service? Pastor Ed sent me a, a video a couple weeks ago. He sent it to a number of us, and it was of this uh, evangelical preacher who was, uh, had a message on the burning bush. And so he was describing that from Exodus. You saw, remember this, Jim? Um, so he's there speaking, and then all, you know, he's wandering around the stage, and there's this uh, electric guitar there. I think it might have been a Fender, Sean. I don't know exactly. But, you know, sitting there, and he's all of a sudden walking around, and all of a sudden there's this flame that appears over the guitar. Not, it wasn't real. It was some visual effect. And so the guy stands there next to this guitar, and he's you know, warming his hands on the fire. He says, hey, God, is that you? You hear this, yes. And then he, like, spends this whole time cracking jokes. You know, hey, God, sorry, I got my shoes on, but it's a church, you know. This is holy ground, right? You know, just carrying on like God was his buddy. It made me mad. I was going to show it, but I thought I didn't want to get worked up more than I'm going to get worked up thinking about it again. Because it was just this, this casual treatment, you know, talking to this guitar and, you know, carrying on. Then he, at the end of it, he goes, uh, so are we done, God? We done here? And he whoosh, blows out the flame. 
comes back to the pulpit, and this is what really was the kicker to me. He says, would you please all stand in honor of God's word? <laughs> Let's honor his word, but, you know, we can treat him flippantly. It doesn't matter. He's cool. There's just such a res- lack of respect, lack of awe. What passes for worship of Christ in many services today, it's right with the holy laughter and holy vomiting and holy barking and people convulsing on the floor violently, hysterical, out-of-control emotions in many services, these flippant theatrics, you know, burning guitar. just goes on and on. Now, some may say, well, Tim, it's, isn't it about the heart? I mean, isn't that ultimately what God wants? He'll take us as we are, right? Doesn't he care about our hearts? Yes, he does. I agree with that. He cares about our hearts. But he cares about is a reverent heart. He cares about a a heart that desires to exalt and lift up the name of Christ, not demean him, not treat him like a buddy. Heard another guy talking about he had this vision of Jesus while he was shaving in the bathroom and says he put his arm around Jesus, slapped him on the back. I think if it was really Jesus, uh, be on the floor in worship, in joyful worship. John 4, 23, Jesus said, God seeks true worshipers who worship him in spirit, that is genuine from the heart, and in truth, that is as instructed by his word as to who God is and how he's to be worshiped. True worship is a, it's a genuine expression of reverence and love and awe and respect and joy in God for knowing for who he is and what he has done for us. And everything we do, especially in a worship service, needs to be what God wants, not what we feel like doing. So we need to ask ourselves, how careful are we to treat God as holy? How careful are we? What's the attitude of, of our own hearts? And how is it expressed when we participate in, in singing together and in communion and in giving, fellowship, in hearing his word being read or proclaimed? I would ask, how, how do you prepare for this time together? What do your Saturday nights look like? How late are you staying up? Are you getting enough sleep so that you can come give undivided attention to our purpose here, to exalt God as we fellowship with one another and do things in honor of Him and to praise Him. How about Sunday mornings when you're getting ready, again in your normal routine, but as you're getting ready, are you thinking about what it is you're approaching? Again, we should be all the time considering, thinking about meditating, praying to the Lord, but again, there's something extremely special about when it's being done, all of us together. How are you preparing your own heart Sunday mornings? One thing we've tried to do as a family is as we drive here together, we have some hymnals in the car and we sing a few songs to the Lord. For one, that helps keep down disputes and arguments on the way. But another thing it does is it's drawing our attention to why we're coming and what we're coming to do. When we come to church before, you know, rushing out of the car, we take a moment to pray and just Ask God to focus our hearts and attention. And I'm not saying these are things you have to do, but these are just things that we and our family have tried to do in order to get our mindset focused on what it is we've come Sunday morning for. How important is this time of corporate worship to you? Do you make every effort to be here on time? 
when you have an important meeting, right, or an event that you're really excited about, right? We usually make every effort to be there, don't we, before it starts? Well, what could be more important, brothers and sisters? Yeah, well, it's every week. and Oh, I know that. But this is the time. This is the time for us that God has allowed for. And yet, how many of us consistently come in 5, 10, 15 minutes or more late? Again, my intent here is not to be legalistic. There's no verse that says, you know, you better be at church on time or, or else. But I think it really does send a message as to how much we do value this time together. So it really gives that some consideration. God deserves our best in every aspect, doesn't he? Well, thinking of all we've talked about so far, some may have the impression, so Tim, are you saying that, you know, God really, all he wants from us, we've got to be serious, we've got to be somber, when we gather together, we need a furrowed brow, you know, no smiles, no warmth, definitely no emotion, right? Is that the picture here? Is that what God's after? Well, you know, it's real interesting. We don't have time to, to go back in detail, but if you go back and look at 1 Chronicles 15, again, after this whole thing, this guy dies in the middle of their ceremony, kind of, you know, it's kind of like, you know, picturing that scene there, you know, we're watching a movie or something, you hear that record scratch, screech, you know, and interrupts it. That's exactly what happened there, you know, like going along, big parade. Oh, that's how it, it just, wet blanket. Three months go by. David's reading his Bible. Looking back at, well, what did God say about the ark? First Chronicles 15, he gathers the priests back together and he says, look, guys, we blew it the first time. We didn't do it right. And I appreciate how David said we. Because it was all the responsibility to know what God had said. We didn't do it right, guys. Let's do it right this time. So they went back to the house of Obed-Edom, who's probably really bummed. <laughs> I've been blessed with it having the ark here. You guys want to take it? Um, they take the ark. This time, guess what? They did it right. And you know what? How do you, th you know what they were doing as they brought it back? Okay, we got to remember to be reverent. So nobody smile. No, just go walk carefully. It says in, let me read a couple of verses actually there. First Chronicles 15. Verse 16, David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers with instruments, music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals to raise sounds of joy. Verse 25, it was David with the elders of Israel and the captains over thousands who went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. They had their celebration, and this time it was in the freedom and basking in obeying God and honoring Him and really making it about Him. This is His ark. We're going to carry it the way He wants it to be carried. We're going to celebrate God, our relationship with God, the way He wants us to. And so, yeah, there was such joy. In fact, this is the famous, pass or famous um, time when David... 2 Samuel 6 is the parallel text. When he was dancing before the Lord with all his might, that happened this second time when they brought the ark into Jerusalem. 1 Chronicles 16, there was a huge celebration as they brought it there, set it down. David wrote a psalm about it. And David there was dancing, but not out of 
control dancing. It says there he was dancing in 2 Samuel 6 before the Lord. The focus was his delight in God. And he expressed it in a way, an exciting way. He was so enjoying, again, this time in reverence and fear and understanding how God wanted to be worshipped that he burst out in dance. One time I went with a friend, uh, or went to see a friend. He was returning from Iraq from his tour of duty there, and we were all at the, on the tarmac under the hangar, and they're flown in, and you know, a bunch of families were there. And um, as these guys, uh, some of which had been six, 12 months, 18 months away, as they came off of the plane, you know, we were supposed to stand and wait. <laughs> Do you know what happened? As these guys were coming down, several of these women kind of shrieked, and they just ran. They bolted to the plane. But nobody drew their guns on them. These women ran with reckless abandon. They jumped in their husbands or boyfriends' arms. Guys they thought they may never have seen again. The kids were jumping up and down in excitement. We're standing here just like, whoa, this is a trip. Now, why did they do that? Were they trying to drum up emotion and think, you know what, I want just to feel good, so I'm going to do this? <laughs> no, it was seeing someone they loved. That's what gave them joy, an expression of that love for that person, not looking for an emotional high. See the difference? It was the case with David. And I'm not advocating that uh, or endorsing that we have dance in our worship services, as some use this text to endorse. Again, this is not prescribing anything. It's just describing what happened. It only leads to a lot of distraction and abuses. But what I do want you to see here is the full joy that David experiences in his relationship with God, worshiping God, and again, doing it in a manner as God prescribed in carrying the ark. Now, one last component, one last thing I want to just touch on real briefly. It's kind of connected to this. Again, it would seem like in this ceremony, after all that had happened the first time, that they would have been moving along pretty soberly and somberly, carefully. But Dale Davis, scholar, said this, a fearful sense of God's holiness does not suppress joy, but stimulates it. Genuine love for God brings both awe and joy. Psalm 211 says, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Or in Hebrews 12:28, it says, Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. And there's that thankfulness, rejoicing, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Again, again, reflecting on who God is and what he has done produces both the reverence and joy. Fear and respect, reverence and awe, Joy and love comes from knowing God and knowing his wonderful gospel. For God's gospel tells us that we have all treated God and an, an all-powerful and holy God like Uzzah did that day. That we did not regard him. We've all disobeyed him. Right? We've all sinned against him, rebelled against him. God's gospel tells us that all of us therefore deserve God's judgment for our sin, that judgment of eternal separation from God in hell. That's what God's gospel says, that we have and 
sinned against our good creator and we'll be separate from him. And you know, that would be the fate of all of us if it weren't for one person, right? Because God's gospel not only tells us, reveals to us the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, of us, it also reveals the fact that that same God became a man and became the perfect man. And it says in his word that he bore our sin in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. And God's gospel says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, that is a, a bowing of the heart, a submission to him as master. And if you Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. That's an affirmation that he is the only one who can pay for sin. That is an affirmation that it is the, God is, will only accept Christ's sacrifice. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. God's glorious gospel reveals the awesomeness and the holiness of God and awe and respect and fear and wonder and also the graciousness of Patience, love, and mercy of God. And in all this, we are in awe, and in all this, we rejoice. If you truly know Him, it causes us, as Psalm 2 said, to worship Christ with reverence and to rejoice with trembling. Or to, as Hebrews says, let us show gratitude, let us be glad, let us rejoice, by which we may offer God an acceptable service in reverence and awe. For beloved, we serve a risen Savior. And at the end of the day, He is the reason why we gather together. Let's pray. Lord, I just, in reflecting on these things, seen many areas in my life, Lord, of being flippant towards you, presuming, not giving you the awe and reverence that you deserve. I thank you for your patience. Thank you for your word, Lord, that speaks of these events that have taken place in history that remind us so clearly how important it is that we treat you with reverence, with respect, with fear, and knowing that it's not a, an oppressive fear, but as your children, a reverence that produces joy knowing who you are and that you would humble yourself to become a man and to die that we might live to go to the cross so that any who would confess their sins to you and place their trust in you would be forgiven what a glorious message and we're so grateful for that help us Lord as a church to honor and worship you in a manner that pleases you, that, Lord, that we would really seek to, to understand how we should approach you, to treat our time together as important, to treat our times with you each day with great value and, and care and importance. We thank you again that we even have a reason to gather because of the blood of Christ, and we pray in his name. Amen.